Welcome to the American College of Mohs Surgery podcast series, Conversations in Mohs Surgery, where Dr. Thomas Kanakstat, academic dermatologist and Mohs surgeon in Cleveland, takes a closer look at articles published in the dermatology literature by speaking with the authors and researchers involved. The podcast is an extension of the college's online bibliography, a searchable high-yield article reference library aligned with the Micrographic Surgery and Dermatologic Oncology Fellowship Curriculum, accessible to ACMS members at www.mosecollege.org slash bibliography. Listeners can suggest articles for inclusion in the bibliography or guests for this podcast by sending an email to info at mosecollege.org. That's info at mohscollege.org. Thank you for listening. Hello, this is Dr. Thomas Knackstead once again for Conversations in Mohs Surgery. Today I'm going to be chatting with Dr. Paul Neem, who is the Chair and Professor of Dermatology at the University of Washington School of Medicine, as well as a um, professor in the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center and the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. Paul, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. My pleasure, Tom. Now, for, for most of dermatology, you arguably don't need much of an introduction as being one of the key Merkel cell carcinoma people in the country. And um, as I was looking through the the literature that we have on Merkel cell, I um, certainly want to highlight some of your more recent work with Merkel cell carcinoma, but I want to sort of start at the very uh, beginning. And before we get into nitty gritty articles, how did you get to be a Merkel cell guy? How, what, what's, your, what's your story sort of leading up to having a lab that focuses on this, speaking on this, publishing on this regularly? What's the background? Yeah, you bet. I, I would have never dreamt that this would have happened. It's a very weird circumstance, but it's a kind of a fun story that I think um, is relevant for people as a, especially young people, as they uh, consider how they want to develop their career. And that the simple answer is, you can't always know what's going to be important and what's not. And uh, don't be too biased against something you don't know about. So when I was a dermatology resident, I saw a patient who had a firm bump on his lip, and I had no idea what it was, maybe a non-melanoma skin cancer, but just did a biopsy, and it turned out to be a Merkel cell carcinoma, and that was about 1996. And I thought, okay, I don't really know how to manage this, but Harley Haynes, my professor, and I kind of looked into things uh, uh, and you know, sort of figured out how to manage that one guy and learned a little bit about this cancer that I knew essentially nothing about. And then I had to write a chapter on it, uh, on that topic, about a year later for a for a textbook, and really thought that was a waste of time and painful. But then I started reading the literature, and wow, it was really interesting and tricky, different than our other skin cancers. But I still thought this was a waste of time, and it would never amount to anything. But then patients started coming from all over the place as soon as that chapter was written, and people realized I had some interest in it. And that just kept going. And I said, all right, fine. It's fun to take care of the patients. Super interesting. But then eventually it, it developed into a, a research area as well. So it's hard, to, it's hard to know how life will unfold. The simple lesson there is when you see something where there's a real need, don't ignore that. Uh, and, and, you know, even if it's not something you thought you were interested in, it, it might turn out to be important later. I, I think that that is so true, and um, it really makes knowledge gap 
sort of an exciting thing because it's an area where you truly can benefit patients and um, and the greater academic community. Now, you split your time doing some basic science lab work as well, directing a lab there. Um, what's the primary focus within uh, your lab? Yeah, back when I started, you know, working on Merkel cell carcinoma, just in the background, I was, and I still am, running a lab focused on how ultraviolet radiation damages DNA and really how the cell responds to that. And that, I think, is finally going to become actually clinically useful and important. Um, things called DNA damage response inhibitors. The PARP inhibitors are the first in that class, but there's going to be ATR inhibitors, ATM, and DNAPK coming along for, uh, I believe, treating cancer more effectively and synergizing with not only radiation, um, which is what it's always um, thought to be relevant for, but now also with immune therapy, I believe. So, so that's a that's an exciting area that you know, had kind of gotten mature for a while, but now is having a new resurgence um, in that um, killing cancer cells selectively by inhibiting their their DNA damage response mechanisms um, is probably going to be really important as we go forward. So stay tuned. Those clinical trials are just getting fired up. Uh, but yeah, my lab now does most of its work, not on that cell cycle zone, but in the in the Merkel uh, area where we're looking at the immune response against the cancer and, and, and just generally how to care for the patients better in, in multiple regards. So, so if we, I, I want to sort of stay on that basic science or translational aspect, but to paint the picture, you know, this is not a common cancer, right? You've probably treated amongst the most cases in the country, but what we're seeing like 1600 cases a year, something like that. Yeah, that was the number not many years ago. Um, and, but it has increased now. It's a bit over, um, 2000 and it's headed towards 3000 in the next few years. So broadly speaking, it's about 30 times less common than melanoma. So yes, not a common cancer, but certainly Mohs surgeons and cutaneous oncologists and even dermatologists more broadly are going to uh, encounter this directly or indirectly with their colleagues, you know, probably at least once every year or more um, through a colleague or, or themselves. So I think I'd like to say at the highest level here message you don't have to feel, nobody needs to feel, I don't feel like they can take care of Merkel uh, by themselves and without any reference or anything. The main point is for Merkel, you got to have a team, you got to um, you have multidisciplinary uh, communication, you got to check on the literature. And if you don't have the time to update yourself on the literature and probably the NCCN guidelines are the simplest, most straightforward way to, you know, look up things or, or maybe up to date. Um, but uh, short of that, just make sure the patient gets to a multidisciplinary center. And there are dozens around the country that have at least some interest in this cancer and, and can do a, a very good job uh, helping to manage the, the trickier cases. If we talk about pathogenesis or the origin of this tumor. Certainly, it's been a number of years now since the 
Merkel uh, cell polyoma virus was discovered. And that sort of was an, an interesting peak, but the whole viral question has gotten a little bit more quiet in the literature. What What's the relevance of the virus now as you see it in terms of being very common in the population, but somehow behaving differently in those people who actually develop a Merkel cell carcinoma? Where are we with that virus? Yes. So in 2008, so 12 years ago, that was discovered. And I, I think um, in many ways, you're right in that, uh, you know, there's a lot of excitement about initially. And it has provided us an enormous amount of insight about how the cancer arises. And it's really fascinating because in Australia, it's mostly straight from sun and there's viruses involved in a minority of cases, maybe 30 or 40 percent. Um, and as you move to countries where there's more pigmentation and or less sun exposure, um, the viral contribution becomes greater. In the United States, it's about 80 percent. And, and in Asian countries, it's about 90 percent that are driven uh, by the virus in terms of how Merkel cell carcinoma arises. And it's fascinating because really what we're talking about, and this is becoming clear, you, you want to talk about science here. This is a neuroendocrine cancer. And under the microscope, it's really hard to tell. Certainly, it's impossible to tell a Merkel cell that's derived from sunlight versus a Merkel cell derived from the virus. But even more broadly than that, it's basically impossible to tell a neuroendocrine lung cancer, like small cell lung cancer, met metastatic to the skin without special stains, looks exactly like a Merkel. And similarly, there's prostate neuroendocrine cancer, there's, there's um, gastrointestinal uh, neuroendocrine cancers. They all look exactly the same, and they actually share a hallmark of five genes um, Park B, um, P for P53, A for AKT, R for retinoblastoma, C for CMYK, that's kind of cheating, and B for BCL2. And if you have those genes mutated, you go down a neuroendocrine differentiation pathway and the cells look the same and, uh, and, and make these neurosecretory granules sort of a developmental stage. But the clinical importance there is that they're aggressive. They become resistant to chemotherapy. They're, um, they grow like crazy. And all of those other flavors of um, uh, carcinomas that then become neuroendocrine in flavor take on the same general behaviors of aggressiveness and such. And uh, we, we can see that in the skin. The UV-induced ones are often directly in, um, this is many reports of this, directly in juxtaposition to squamous cell carcinoma. And you can see a common cell of origin differentiating in it maybe to the left in the tumor towards squamous cell and to the right in the tumor towards Merkel or neuroendocrine. And we know that there's just a gene or two that got flipped and turned what was normally a squamous cell into basically a Merkel in that case. And then it takes on all the behaviors, the nasty behaviors of a neuroendocrine cancer, which in the skin we call Merkel cell carcinoma, but in other organs, they also behave aggressively. So anyway, it's, it, it's a fascinating thing. And on a daily practical level, coming back to your central question, the virus isn't immediately relevant, except for maybe the blood test that we'll talk about in a, in a couple minutes, perhaps. Um, it, it doesn't directly change management and patients are just as likely to respond to immune therapy whether they're 
Merkel was caused by the virus or sunlight? Only because you brought it up first. Um, so, so cell of origin, Merkel touch receptor completely outdated as a potential source as at this point? I think everybody believes exactly that who's really thinking about this. It's cute to have the name Merkel cell carcinoma. It helps patients. It helps doctors know what they're talking about. But I think it's a misnomer. It doesn't come from the normal Merkel cell in the skin. It comes probably from epidermal progenitor cells. Definitely that's the case in the UV. It's more controversial in the viral-driven setting, whether it's an epidermal progenitor uh, versus the, the only skin cell that can be directly infected by Merkel cell polyomavirus experimentally is the dermal fibroblast. And it may or may not be a coincidence that um, Merkel cell carcinoma arises basically in a dermal setting. Mm. Um, there are people that believe that the virus positive Merkel is actually derived from fibroblasts. So um, stay tuned. Interesting. Yeah. I, it, it's amazing how even in, in my short career, that understanding of the cell of origin, if anything, has become more convoluted than less convoluted. So yeah, perhaps <laughs> when we follow up in 10 years, we'll laugh back at at, at this confusion. So you say basically the, the virus in terms of prognosis does not make a difference, but we can talk about antibodies to the virus in the blood and how that potentially helps monitor patients, maybe diagnose patients. Where, where does that antibody in the blood help us? Yes. So our group, as well as several groups around the world, and one group in, in France in particular, have developed this blood test, and we cross-validated it and you know, studied, studied it over a decade now. And there's two practical things for looking in the blood for antibodies against the Merkel polyomavirus oncoproteins that drive the disease. So first, most of us have exposure to this virus, as you alluded to, and we have antibodies to the capsid protein, the outer coach protein of the virus. Um, that's really, really common. And that doesn't, that's not really associated with Merkel cell carcinoma. It doesn't go up and down with disease. So those antibodies to the outside coach protein of the virus don't matter. The antibodies to the oncoprotein, that the proteins that drive the cancer to grow and that must be expressed in Merkel polyomavirus driven um, Merkel cell carcinoma, those antibodies are present in about half of patients at the time that they are diagnosed. And if the patient makes them, they're at a 40% lower chance of having the cancer come back. So that's a happy thing. And then there's a blood test that is more sensitive and specific than scans to tell whether the cancer is coming back and spares the patient the radiation and the contrast dye and such. So that's a useful thing. But for the patients that don't make those antibodies, they're at a higher risk of having the cancer come back and they need to be followed clinically and or ideally with scans, depending on whether the patient would want to have immune therapy if their cancer came back. So there's two reasons to try to get one blood draw, ideally within around three months of 
when the patient was diagnosed and had disease in order to find out if the patient makes those antibodies or not. Because after about six, nine, 12 months, most patients who made antibodies will lose them and they'll go away. And then with extremely high confidence, over 99%, if the cancer comes back, the antibodies will go up typically well before it's clinically evident. So it's a great test for tracking the recurrence and this cancer will recur on average in 40% of patients. So that is many fold higher than melanoma, for example, and much, much higher than, of course, basal or squamous. So it's a high recurrence risk cancer. And so tracking the patient carefully is very logical for most patients, unless you're really talking about the 90-year-old guy who just wants some palliation. Right, right. And you know, the the recurrence rate is what really, at least in academic sense, makes this tumor so fascinating. And then, uh, especially if you consider the, the treatment strategies we currently use for that. So if we talk about the treatment of a primary Merkel cell carcinoma, then I think most individuals who encounter this disease once, twice a year have an appreciation and a respect for the fact that, you know, somewhere around the third of the patients are going to have nodal disease at the time of their presentation. And they will also appreciate that arguably having a larger cancer potentially increases that risk. When you talk to your patients about the treatment of that primary tumor with surgery, is there a role for most surgery? Are you more in favor of a one to two centimeter margin? Are you advocating much larger margins than that? Where do you um, fall in terms of the, the surgical recommendations? So the issue of how do you manage Merkel surgically is so tricky for so many reasons. And I think one thing that may help kind of heuristically is you almost have to think about it in a different way. Most surgeons are super accustomed to the difference between a clinical margin where you look at the tumor and you say, okay, I can see the tumor ends there. And they know that there are often microscopic extensions beyond there. And that is the awesome power of Mohs surgery to actually circumferentially assess the whole thing. For Merkel cell carcinoma, that is true. But the, there's a next level that you almost have to invent. I'm not really sure that we have, we, it's not relevant for any other skin cancer. That is a biological margin. In other words, you can have circumferential margins that are negative. And very, very often, for a simple reason, they're not biologically negative. Because Merkel doesn't grow like a ball, it doesn't even grow like a tree where you've got a trunk and then you've got roots. The, the cancer jumps one, two, three, four, five centimeters beyond where you can see it, not only clinically, but also histologically. So there are many, many cases, um, and I would say <laughs> really large numbers, like approaching 30, 50%, where you've got uh, microscopically negative margins and this thing shows up one, two, three centimeters beyond your negative margins. 
So again, you got a clinical margin, you got a microscopic margin, you got to invent this concept of a biological margin here. And that biological margin is relevant if you have lymphovascular invasion, it's relevant if the patient is immune suppressed, it's relevant if it's on the head and neck, which is a significantly higher risk location, it's relevant if the tumor is greater than about one or two centimeters in diameter. It's certainly relevant if the sentinel lymph node biopsy is positive. You put all those factors there and you have most Merkels cannot be managed with not only just a clinical margin, of course, but I think a microscopic margin is often not enough to give you even 95% chance of local control. You won't get 90 or 95% chance of local control with microscopic margins only in those cases that have any of those risk factors. And so we are usually then, obviously that, that implies some radiation there. And the important thing is if you're going to put radiation in the equation locally, you don't need microscopically negative margins even. Many, many, many cases we got this, we and others have, have documented this carefully. If you just debulk and then do a uh, you know sort of five centimeter radiation margin around your primary, you're in good shape with positive margin. You 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 cover it very very successfully. So uh, that's that's part of why it's so complicated, and you cannot just come up with a one or two centimeter margin uh, simple recommendation. Uh, it is really tricky, and you have to think of multiple factors at once. So, so I'm going to steal your biological margin phrase here. And so do you think that biological margin is truly, um, or let me rephrase it, is lymphovascular invasion and satellitosis simply the manifestation of, of your concept there? Or do you think it's more that a tumor like Merkel cell sends out cytokines, growth factors, et cetera, that then affect adjacent cells? Or do you think it's truly a primary tumor that has, through lymphatics and vessels, gone those five centimeters? Or, or how, give me a little bit more on that biological margin or how you explain the, the tumor that's right outside of your field of radiation or right outside of your surgical margin. So you're asking wonderful, fascinating science and etiology questions that, to be completely honest, I can't answer the mechanism. I'm only saying the observation. Mm -hmm. And the observation is that once you have, yes, lymphovascular invasion roughly doubles your risk of, of recurrence. Uh, lots of studies to show that. Immune suppression doubles your risk of recurrence. Um, larger primary, just kind of a no-brainer. It, it just has it's grown more. It's had more time to send out its seeds. You know, in melanoma, there's some fascinating biology. You're asking interesting biological questions. There's some fascinating biology where they've shown that exactly as you're saying, there are factors being released from the tumor that promote movement of the tumor into the lymph nodes. They literally get the lymph node ready for the tumor before the tumor arrives. So I think such a thing is not at all science fiction. It's, it's probably plausible, but that hasn't been really characterized in Merkel yet. Um, all I can tell you is the observation. Mm -hmm. And the observation is that we took our patients who had lowest risk of recurrence, like they were 
had sort of a small primary and negative sentinel node and all that stuff. And we didn't radiate them in a good number of cases. And in that case, margin size greater than one centimeter was highly protective. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to basically not radiate, which I am not saying all Merkles need to be radiated, no way. But if you, as you add one or two or three risk factors, the chance of local recurrence is really high. You know, we're approaching 30, 40, 50% once you've got some of those risk factors and you don't radiate. Um, and I'm only talking local. We're not talking nodal or distant. But the, the chance of recurrence gets really high. And uh, that happened in our case. We thought these people are really low risk. And you really need wider margins if you're not going to radiate is, uh, you know, partly the the story and what we are often doing now is we've found a goldilocks way to do radiation so in the past it was either no radiate no adjuvant radiation at all or the full six weeks 50 or 60 gray of radiation and now we are often doing for these modest to low risk cases where we have at least a microscopic negative margin we will do one dose of radiation of eight gray. Patients almost have no side effects from it, and it's very effective in Merkel. Um, we're studying its efficacy in terms of this in a prospective way, but it it works well. And it's nice to have something in between those two extremes, and it's a really good um, safety option. And that's only to the primary tumor, not the negative node, nodal basin, correct? That is correct. We, if, if you've done a sentinel node and it's negative, we do not radiate the node basin. Now, does everybody need that sentinel node? No. Simple answer is we do not do a sentinel node on everybody, but we would consider it and discuss it in nearly everybody. Mm -hmm. And as you said, there are probably a dozen studies that show that in clinically node-negative Merkel, the chance that there's microscopic spread there already is right around 33%. It's amazing how reproducible that has been in study after study. And it does vary. You know, if the primary size is bigger or smaller, it goes to 20% or 15% is the lowest It'll go for really, really low risk small primaries, and it'll go up to fifty percent or more in in other in higher risk situations. So you have a really high chance that there's disease there. If you detect it, I would argue you don't save the patient's life <laughs> directly. I'm not I'm not arguing that sentinel nodes save patients' lives right and left. No, but you know the risk that will triple the chance of recurrence if they're if they're positive. And you know that you need to do some additional therapy to the node bed. If you don't treat at all a sentinel node positive bed, the risk of recurrence to that bed is like 50%, really high, um, a, a progression in that bed. So you do need to do something and, and most people will radiate the node bed and radiate the primary site at the same time if the sentinel node was positive. So there is a subset of patients coming back to your exact question, who doesn't need it? Well, patients who don't need the prognostic information, patients where you're going to radiate the primary site in the node bed anyway, 
um, because they're so close. Are you going to do surgery in both? Um, if it's not going to change management and you don't care about the prognosis, you don't need a sentinel node. But that's a minority of cases. Is it similar to melanoma where a completion lymphadenectomy has essentially completely fallen out of favor or perhaps was never really in favor given that radiation tends to do pretty well initially? Or is there a, a role for that as an alternative or in addition to radiation? So no one who does Merkel a lot believes that for a sentinel node positive node bed, you should do both radiation and surgery. So no one's doing that. That's a lot of extra morbidity and there's no need for that. What's really clear is either one is sufficient. And I think the vast majority of people end up doing radiation for a positive node bed because they're going to probably be radiating the primary site as well, knowing that that primary site has you know, already shot off cells all the way up to the nodes, there's probably a pretty good risk at the primary site as well. So uh, yeah, I think in a way it is like um, melanoma completion node dissections. We basically never do that for a positive sentinel node. We will typically do radiation. I think this is a nice segue into your your most recent article, which is in cancer medicine. So far, it's on PubMed ahead of print. I'm not sure if it's in print yet, but it's titled Patterns of Distant Metastasis in 250 Merkel Cell Carcinoma Patients. And the reason I found this article interesting is because the patterns of distant metastasis, as the title implies, are really different from melanoma. Can you sort of walk the audience and our listeners through how this study came to be and how it changes your your thinking and then maybe we'll highlight some of the actual numbers from that paper yeah so it's always fun to say why did a study come about and in this case it was our radiologists our diagnostic radiologists they were saying gosh we see a lot of merkel first first comment and then they say you know Merkel doesn't behave like any of the other cancers. So it was our radiologist, Ryan O'Malley and Carolyn Wong, who said, this is a weird cancer and maybe we should look at it. And, you know, their team was excited. And then we were following a huge number of patients. And so 215 patients who developed distant metastases uh, while we were following them prospectively were analyzed here. And yeah, it's really quite different than melanoma. So melanoma, 27% of distant melanomas go to the brain. In Merkel, it's much lower. It's 5%. In contrast, we've seen an awful lot of pancreatic metastases and peripancreatic metastases. That is, that is discussed in the paper. And then the, the liver is pretty similar to melanoma. A quarter, roughly a quarter of Merkels will go to the liver, roughly 20% of melanomas. So liver, it likes liver in either case. One of the striking things was on the head and neck. If you've got a Merkel on the head and neck, it's likely to go to the liver. That would be its favorite place. Whereas a Merkel on the leg is 10 times less likely to go to the liver and it's likely to go to lymph nodes in the groin and, and up along the aorta. So the patterns are, are different, and that, that 
not only has implications for the radiologist who's looking at this and saying, uh, you know, I don't really need to worry about the lungs so much. It's not a very popular place for Merkel to go to, um, but I should pay attention to the liver and, um, and, and less so to the brain and such. But the survival chances are quite different depending on where it spreads to. So skin and body wall, distant metastases are several times more likely to be survivable than is liver, which is actually the worst, uh, perhaps because liver is an immune privileged environment and it's hard to get a good immune response there. It can happen, but, uh, and, and these particular data don't reflect the era of checkpoint immune therapy. So we, we can get some benefit there, but uh, you know, depending on where it goes in the body, um, multiple distant lymph nodes is is significantly worse than again skin and body wall where even um you know with distant metastatic disease before immune checkpoint inhibitors you know you have about 40 percent of patients surviving with distant skin and body wall disease whereas that's more like 10 or so percent for for these other sites of of liver and multiple lymph nodes and such i want to ask um j just one probing question there when uh, because I've I've uh, come across this in some melanoma studies, when you categorize something as skin or body wall distant metastasis, what is your definition versus, or let me say, what is your definition of that in a cancer that's known to have you know the behavior we just talked about in terms of having recurrences right outside of your surgical field, right outside of your radiation field. What is a distant skin metastasis versus um, satellitosis in transit, METs, things of that nature? Yes, quite tricky. But broadly speaking, let's just take a Merkel arising on the wrist or something like that. Anything between the wrist and the axilla is going to be basically in transit, unless it's essentially contiguous with the tumor, and then you would you would just call it you know a larger tumor or, or maybe a microsatellite or something like that. But once you're clinically discrete, and these are AJCC, NCCN kinds of definitions, once you're clinically evidently discrete from the primary all the way up to the lymph nodes, and including lymph nodes becomes in transit or or nodal metastatic disease. Once you jump beyond that, quote, draining lymph node bed, the, and, and you show up and the tumor shows up in the skin, and body wall means, you know, deep skin structures like dermis, deep dermis, maybe adipose uh, metastasis only. Once you're past the draining node bed, then it becomes a distant uh, metastasis. And, you know, these things are slightly arbitrary you know if it's one or two centimeters beyond <laughs> um, the axilla i mean how do you even measure that exactly but you do your best and um and realize it's a biological continuum and we're doing our best to put things into bins and so that we can study them even though biologically they may not as you're implying always be truly discrete how has uh, you mentioned that that study has basically originated from a, a group of patients in the pre-immunotherapy age. And since most of us don't encounter this tumor frequently and aren't the ones prescribing immunotherapy, what is it that we can now tell patients about how successful we are with immunotherapy in, in this tumor? Yes. So 
many interesting aspects to that. I think perhaps at the highest level is Merkel cell carcinoma is the most responsive solid tumor to immunotherapy with response rates that are around 60%, depending on the study, but you know, they're all within noise. They're basically around 60%. And that is a, a very high response rate to for a solid cancer for immunotherapy. And why? Well, we believe in the virus negative cases, there's an enormous number of UV-induced neoantigens. It is harder to get yourself in the sun and turn a skin cell into a Merkel cell carcinoma than it is a melanoma. And I'm mathematically making that statement because on average, there are more mutations in a Merkel than in a melanoma. And so that helps to explain why the response rate is even higher. And in the course in the virus negative cases, there are viral antigens that the immune system can see um, instead of those non-self neoantigens. So we know that the immune response can be strong on that basis. And this was an interesting story, you know, a number of years ago, trying to convince pharmaceutical companies to look at using an immune checkpoint inhibitor in Merkel cell carcinoma. And they said, no, you guys have a disease that chemotherapy will, you know, effectively shrink in over 60% of cases. And, and it's a rare disease. We won't make any money. And, uh, you know, there's never been a positive trial. So buzz off. So what, what we tried to argue with that is, and eventually through the NCI got a trial going and, and kind of then the responses were remarkable, that yes, chemotherapy will shrink the tumor in fully 60% of cases, but those responses last days, really short. Most of those responses are gone in 90 days from the time of the first dose of the chemotherapy. And that is really, really crappy, you know, durability. Uh, and we thought, and we were super happy to find out that it actually worked that way. If you respond to immune therapy, your chance of staying in response for a prolonged period was about 80%. And I'm talking more than one or more than two years. And so we, that re represents among responders to chemo, and among responders to immunotherapy, a greater than tenfold chance that your response will persist. So that's really huge. And that's probably the biggest thing. I mean, we still have almost half of Merkel patients ultimately not responding to a immune checkpoint inhibitor, uh, either because they don't in the first place or they, their tumor acquires resistance. But um, having half benefit in a really prolonged way is compared to 5% with such benefit for chemotherapy. And are we, by and large, using PD-1 and PD-L1 drugs, or, or is there anything else? Is there a role for ipilimumab in, in this disease? What, what's sort of the first line in 2020? Right now, in terms of any published data, it's all about first line being PD-1 uh, or PDL1. Uh, the first approved agent was a Velumab, um, which is an anti PDL1. And then the next one was Pembrolizumab, which was anti PD1. And statistically speaking, they're basically Coke and Pepsi. They are not different. 
we do not routinely start patients with Ipi Nevo. Much higher side effects, even with the lower dosing of Ipi, there, there are definitely higher side effects from that. And there are no published data to suggest that the initial responses are better. Um, we just don't know the answer to that yet. But with a 60% initial response rate and in a somewhat older population, adding on the extra toxicity of ipilimumab is not something most people are doing at this point. Wonderful. Yeah, thank you for that sort of clarification. I certainly want to be mindful of your, your time, but um, what, what else do you, do you think is, is valuable for the Mohs surgeon and the, the dermatologist listening to this podcast? when it comes to Merkel so that we may not have yet hit on? I think we, we, we hit on a lot of stuff. And, you know, we could go on for a long, long time. I think the really high-level important thing is this is not a cancer to manage as a one-person thing. You really want to get thinking with your team. Um, surgery, uh, obviously dermatology in the first place, um, medical oncology in some cases, and radiation oncology in many cases. And you really want that cluster of folks to have had some experience thinking about Merkel and being sort of updated because things are changing incredibly fast in the management. So at least one visit, if your team doesn't do that a lot, at least one visit to a team that does it a lot and then, and then partner with them and, you know, in, in the longer term care of the patient. But I think we really hit on a lot of important points today. And uh, I guess the one thing I, we, we have created a website that I believe, you know, is, is helpful in general. Um, it's MerkelCell.org. And uh, it's got a lot of this, everything we've talked about today would be covered there and the, and the papers. And it's, it's designed for patients as well as docs um, to try and get at, you know, current thoughts. And it has a listing of many dozens of centers around the world that are interested in this cancer and have promised me that they will do their best to take care of patients, get them in quickly. This is a cancer that grows quickly and is much more aggressive than your typical skin cancer. So it really is important to work as a team. Perfect. And certainly I encourage our listeners to Always look at the the NCCN guidelines, but then also visit the the website, and we'll put that into the the show notes to make sure that our listeners have access to the uh, Merkel Cell website. Paul, with that, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I want to thank our listeners for their attention. The article that we discussed today is going to be included in our Mohs College Reference Library, which is accessible through the Mohs College website. Uh, as always, to all of our listeners, please share the podcast with your colleagues and trainees, uh, in this case, perhaps also with your medical oncologist and surgical oncologist. Uh, let us know how we're doing and who you would like to have on the show in the future by contacting info at Thank you, and I hope you'll join me next time on Conversations in Mohs Surgery. <laughs>